Good morning. Uh, for those who don't know, my name is Dave. I am the student pastor here at Common Ground. Um, so uh, I got a couple of questions before we jump in. Um, super important stuff. Uh, raise your hand if you're a turkey family. All right, raise your hand if you're a ham family. Raise your hand if you're both. Absurd. Okay, raise your hand if you're neither. Are you a tofurkey family? What do you, what do you make? Italian. Italian? Like what, like lasagna? I'm all about that, actually. We might want to think about that. Um, all right. So I hope you all had an awesome Thanksgiving. Um, we certainly did as a family in Reno. It was a good time. So I'm going to ask another question. You can raise your hand for this one, too. Who here has ever gone to school, taken a test, and as you're going there to take it, you're like, man, this is going to be such a breeze. It's like, it'll be so easy. And then you go there, you sit down, you're handed the test, and you're like, oh, no. This is actually not going to be easy at all. Raise your hand if you've ever been in that situation. All right, good. I'm not alone. Thank goodness. Um, so I think most of us have been there in some form or another. Um, but one of the craziest stories I ever heard like this was a former youth group student of mine um, in another state uh, many years ago. But she graduated high school, went on to college. She was struggling in this one class that was outside her major, one of these ones that you got to take no matter what. And uh, all the students seemed to be struggling with this class for whatever reason. So the professor saw that, and he offered an extra credit test on a different day. Um, they could come in, do that, and it'll help boost their grade. So she showed up with a bunch of other students to take that test. But what was really weird is she told me that it was all about the professor. It was literally his likes and dislikes that he had like mentioned apparently throughout the semester. She said it was also very subjective and some of it was like not even fully accurate, but really bizarre, right? So um, I would also say that was pretty unfair to a certain degree, um, but some tests can be unfair. Well, in the book of 1 John, there is in some ways a series of tests to see if we really know God. But these tests, unlike that crazy college exam, are accurate and fair. And I would say they are probably the most important tests that we will ever take. So we all want our experiences with God to be genuine, and we want them to be real. Well, studies show that about 51% of the people in the American church culture, which is like people who would say they're part of the church in some form, um, believe that they are right with God. Because, and this is the reasons why uh, that, they, that they gave. They prayed a prayer, they got baptized or confirmed, whatever their tradition uh, calls that. But is that genuine? Is that real? Plus, what about all the other world religions out there? People in basically every religion say that they know God. So how do we know our experience with God is genuine and real? In Matthew 7, Jesus warns us uh, about a lot of people who on the last day will say to him, Lord, Lord, and they will expect to be accepted uh, into heaven, only to be turned away with the very terrifying words, Depart from me, I never knew you. And they'll say, but Lord, like, you know, we, we prayed the sinner's prayer. And he'll say, but I never knew you. And they'll say, uh, but Lord, you know, we knew lots about the Bible. And he'll say, yeah, but I never knew you. And they'll say, but, um, you know, we were in ministry. 
And in fact, if you look at that group he's talking to in Matthew 7, um, he's kind of talking about this group of people that will talk to him one day, but um, they were apparently active in their church's prayer ministry and, and, and kind of like the cream of the crop people because they were part of the casting out demon squad in their church. Um, and that's kind of like varsity level, I guess. But they'll say, but Lord, you know, we were all so moral. And they probably were. They probably were pretty moral. But that didn't prove that they knew Jesus. That scene is not far from my mind whenever I preach to any age group, and it shouldn't be far from any of our minds. So how do we know that we won't be in that group? Well, in 1 John, it is written to, uh, I think, really answer that question, to give us some answers to those big questions. So we're going to be in 1 John 4, um, 7 through 21. If you're using a blue Bible under your seat, that's going to be on page 1125, 1125. And here John gives us two final tests in these verses. So we're going to begin in, in uh, verse 7. So 1 John 4, 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Okay, so what is the sign here that you know God, if we love one another? It says, for whoever loves has been born of God. Jump to the next verse, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So this is one of the only times in the whole Bible where God is identified with one of his attributes. It, it doesn't say God is loving. It says God is love. Now, we can't overread that, though. He's not saying that the emotion of love is always God or that love is God's only attribute. But what it does show you is that love is core to God's being and nature. And if that giving, self-sacrificial love is not at the core of our being, then there's no way that God is in us. And that's John's big major point there. Then jumping to verse 9. It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, John goes on to uh, describing God's love now. And God's love was not just a feeling he had towards us. It translated into an action in which he saved us, an action that was defined by his grace. And then in verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So here he's saying God does basically the unthinkable, that our creator God, having been rejected by his own creation and who could have simply stamped his finger Thanos style and destroyed all of us um, and started over, chose instead out of compassion to take on the penalty for our sin and suffer in our place where we should be suffering. A king dying for unrepentant traitors. A creator dying for his creation. A betrayed perfect man offering himself as a sacrifice for the betrayer. Could any of us say we would have done that? He wasn't obligated at all to do it. He didn't need to do it. He wanted to. He didn't need us, he wanted us. So the defining characteristic of God is love, 
and the defining quality of God's love is the grace he showed to us. Now that's one of those things that we should all sit and meditate on for a while until it truly sinks in. So Charles Spurgeon, um, great pastor many years ago, said that if there was one subject that he could always speak on, but he felt utterly incapable about speaking on it, would have been the love of God. So one of the greatest speakers who ever lived said that the love of God, said this about that, makes me back from this platform utterly ashamed of my poor feeble words. This love of Christ is the most amazing thing under heaven, if not in all of heaven itself. We simply can't begin to fathom the depth of God's love for us. It's it's truly immeasurable in human terms and understanding. But what do we do with this depth of love from God toward us? Well, let's go to verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That word there, ought. The reason we ought to love one another is because that's what our creator is like. And he loved us first. This is the, in my opinion, my belief, the Achilles heel of atheism or agnosticism or philosophical naturalism or whatever you want to call it. A worldview without God cannot provide a reason we ought to love one another. So most agnostics will say that, well, love is a good thing, and many of them are loving people. I think some of us probably know some agnostics and atheists who are, well, at least in action, more loving than even some Christians we know. But philosophically, they can't provide an ought for their love. No reason why love is good and right. If we all evolved by purely natural processes from, you know, microbes, why ought we love one another? Why not let the survival of the fittest kind of just rule all of our dealings with one another? And why would we ever self-sacrifice for each other or show grace to each other, especially when it's often at a great cost to ourselves? You could say, well, it's best for the species if we do that, but that's not an ought. I just see that as kind of like a fancy form of self-interest. And by the force of that logic, if I became convinced that killing you and stealing all your stuff would be better for me, and and if I'm stronger than you and I can pull that off, then why shouldn't I just go and do that? When you are talking with someone who is an atheist who says that they can be moral without believing in God, I believe that's true, because God created us in his image, so we have moral impulses, and even an atheist can sense those impulses and even obey some of them pretty well sometimes. But like I said, it's just that they can't provide a philosophical basis that ought reasoning for their morality. The Christian says that we ought to love because that's the nature of our God in whose image we were formed and how God has been towards us already. 1 John 4.11 again says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So the sign that you know God and have been born of God is that, again, you love. Not just in feeling, but in action and choice. Now, I want to go on to verse 13 because John kind of starts to back up a little bit and he makes the same point but kind of from like a different angle, right? So he's going to make the same point from a different stance, kind of like a one-two punch combo a little bit. So let's go to verse 13. 
By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So here John says we know that we know God because his spirit lives in us. Well, how do you know that we know like the spirit's living in us? Unfortunately, there's no spirit reader like a spiritual Geiger counter. Um, You can't feel him kicking around in there like a pregnant woman can feel her baby kicking her bladder. But wouldn't that kind of be helpful? There's probably a lot of moms in here going like, no, shut up. That's not, no, (laughs) not good at all. But there are people in our world today who say that the proof of the Holy Spirit should be some magical, big, giant sign that proves that the Spirit is in you. Like something like speaking in tongues or some kind of spirit prophecy but the Bible does not say that. In fact, in Matthew 7, when Jesus identifies that group that has false assurance, one of the things they pointed to was their mighty acts in the Spirit. They did these bunch of like mighty works. They were casting out demons. So having spiritual gifts, and I would say this, it's more like the look that you have spiritual gifts is not proof. So want to know how you know the Holy Spirit dwells in you. I think we would all want to know that. John himself tells you in the next verse here, verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So how do you know the Spirit is in you? You know the Spirit is in you because you recognize the truth about Jesus, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world. That is the sign. Now, let me explain this for a minute because, I don't know, I'm, I'm someone who's, you know, more of a skeptic than anything in most things in the world. I need proof and all that. You might say, well, that's not very convincing proof, right? At least not to people on the outside of all of this. They could, you know, just say like, so you, you know, like I can prove to you that the Spirit's in me. Ready? I believe in Jesus. And they might be like, hmm, all right. Um, but... It's more like this, really. So the original Greek in this verse really translates more fully to this. Anyone who professes to declare openly, to speak out freely that he is a worshiper of Jesus, the Son of God, then um, God abides, resides, remains, never to depart in him, and he abides, resides, remains, never to depart in God. So right there, that's more than just simple words, right? That's active living, a real relationship between a human and their God. And it starts with professing faith through words, but continues to a changed nature, one that daily abides in Jesus and Jesus daily abiding in that person, which will produce Christ-like fruit that is tangible and visible to others. Verse 16 says, so we have come to know and to believe that the love, uh, the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So God allows us to sense that love, and he does that through the peace and joy that he gives to us, regardless of our circumstances in our life. One of my many life verses that God just always constantly calls me back to is Philippians 4, 7. It says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
if you have ever experienced that, it is life-changing. And that right there is the abundant life that we're always talking about in here. The abundant life only found in Jesus Christ. The fullness of the Holy Spirit is being filled with the knowledge of the love of God towards you and all other people. That's what John is saying. The sign that you are filled with the Spirit is that you are filled with a sense of the love of God. So often actively shown to us through his Spirit's peace and joy that we can feel despite our circumstances not even changing. And that type of active love, when you experience that, it moves you. It moves you. Verse 19, we love God because he first loved us. So God's love for us moves us to love. We are moved to love God because he actively loved us first. But God's love also moves us to love in another way. It says in verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he uh, who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. So by brother, he means a fellow Christian. So it is inconceivable that you could encounter the power of that love, the power of that grace, and not be filled with love yourself. Anyone who is given even just a glimpse by the Spirit into the love of God walks away changed, and usually without the words to even describe it. King David said in Psalm 103.11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. So think about that for a second. How high, you know, the heavens are above the earth. By heavens there, he's talking about the stars, right? Outer space. Um, how do we even measure that? That would take a pretty long tape measure, right? Think of it this way, though. To the edge of our galaxy alone, the Milky Way, traveling at the speed of light would take 100,000 years. To get to the edge of our universe, astronomers believe if you were traveling again at the speed of light, it would take 15.5 billion years. So Paul says in Ephesians uh, 3, that we uh, were reading earlier, that the love of God surpasses our knowledge. And if, if we could just get a glimpse of the height and the breadth and the length and the depth of God's love for us, we'd start to get this. The closest thing I have encountered to that depth of love is when I look at my own daughters. When I first looked at my children, I didn't say, all right, is she gonna be worthy of my love? No, I loved her because she is mine. And at no point in their lives will I ever look at them and say, all right, you know, Ellie, Sarah, this, you know, I'm sorry, it's just not really working out for me, you know? <laughs> but, but, you know, it's not you, it's me, that whole deal. <laughs> One of my daughters is actually in here this morning. <laughs> Don't worry, Ellie, that's not coming. All right, um, but the thing is, is actually their faults, if anything, become something that make me love them more. Like I have compassion on them and I want to help them in their weaknesses, mostly because when I see their weaknesses, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, that's, that's my bad. I'm like, just like that too. But that's how God's love is for us though, tender, compassionate, and absolutely unconditional. Like a father with a child, but a few billion 
light years more intense. And again, it is inconceivable that you could encounter the power of that kind of love and grace and not be filled with love yourself. So that's our first test. We are sure that we know God because we love others. How much do we selflessly sacrifice for other people? Verse 17 says, uh, actually we're going to go to 1 John 3, 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother again, a, a brother or sister in Christ in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So ask yourselves this question. Where would you be in your life if Jesus used his resources the way that you are using yours? What is your giving like? The whole trajectory of your life, is it to love and serve people or is it to look out for yourself? Is it to do every single thing you can to make sure that you are coming to Sundays uh, here, Sunday morning church, and making sure your kids are going to Wednesday night youth group, maybe sacrificing sports or other activities to do so, to make sure that you are all here in fellowship every week, to make sure you are invested in a small group so that you are being discipled yourself and you're growing in your faith? How much are you sacrificing for God out of your love for God? Are things in this world, not necessarily just outright bad things, but things in this world taking you away from a fully surrendered life in Jesus? How quickly do you forgive others who have wronged you? Do you place more value on nursing your own wounds, or do you place more value on seeing someone possibly come to God and be restored to God? How many people have you talked about with Jesus recently? Is the real reason you don't share Christ because you value your convenience and comfort more than that person's salvation? The sign that we are filled with God is that we love like God loves, and that reveals itself in how we give and self-sacrifice and forgive others like Jesus does for us. Now, I'm someone who, you know, is pretty hard on myself, so Sometimes when I read or hear things like this, I can kind of go into a place of despair sometimes. You know, do I love enough? How do I know if I love enough? But we are extremely blessed that that is not how we should respond to this truth. That's why the basis of our salvation is not how much we love, but on what Christ has already accomplished. But as you believe that, you should see this beginning in you. So do you see Christ's love growing in you? Which leads me to one more thing I want to point out. There's one other thing that having our eyes open to the love of God does for us, and it's a really important test. So we got to cover it. This is in verses 17 and 18. By this, love, uh, by this is uh, love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So that's our second test. We are sure we know God because God's love has driven out our fear. So let's look at that phrase again. Fear has to do with punishment. 
When you are afraid of death, it is because you fear punishment. And that fear shows that you haven't fully understood or believed or grasped the gospel. And that is all sin and condemnation have been removed from you. All of it. Jesus finished the work of your salvation. God's perfect love as high as the heavens are above the earth. He took all of it in your place. There is therefore now no condemnation, as Paul says in Romans 8, that there is no reason for fear for those who are in Christ Jesus because nothing can separate us, this is what Paul says, from God's love. Not death, not life, not heavenly angels or earthly rulers, neither the mistakes of our past nor the pain of anything that happens to us in our future, not the heights of peril or the depths of despair, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. So when you grasp that, fear vanishes. Many of you walk around probably, because I'm like that too sometimes, with a sense of fear and guilt. But fear has to do with punishment. Even if you haven't maybe known what to call that, the gospel drives that fear out. God took it in our place. So when you believe the gospel, you have no guilt in life. The judge, one and only judge, God, has already declared you free of all condemnation due solely to Jesus' work on the cross. So that's our two tests that John says prove we have genuinely known the one true God. They are both fruits from experiencing the love of God. That's fearlessness and an overflowing sense of love toward others. So ask yourself, are these things true for you? I'm not saying that you're gonna ever become perfect. None of us will um, by any means. But when you are born again, you should see the birth of these two things in your heart. Are they in your heart? Are they growing? What do you do if they're not in your heart? First is believe the gospel. That's the answer. Always has been, always will be. Whatever the diagnosis, you know, of anything that's off spiritually within you, there's one prescription, fully and truly believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So start there. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you um, for loving us first, for showing us how to love. God, we know that um, we'll never be perfect But Lord, help us to examine our own hearts. Help us to hear what you have to say about where we're at with you, Lord. Are we right with you? Our experience is genuine with you. If they're not, Lord, no matter how hard it is for us to hear that, tell us the truth. We need the truth from you so that we can uh, diagnose that and, and work on fully believing what you have already done for us. Fully understanding or getting close to it how much you love us to the point where all fear is driven out. Fear of, of punishment after death from you. Fear of what this world might do to us when we stand up and publicly love you, Lord. God, I do pray that uh, in small groups uh, and, and in our own homes and in our own personal walks with you as we're going over this and meditating on this, Lord, I pray that you help us to, to uh, understand in our own lives where we're at. 
What do we need to work on, Lord? How are we loving others? Are we doing okay there? How can we do better? Who are specific people in our lives we need to talk to you, uh, talk to them about you, Lord? Who are people in our lives that have needs that need to be met? Let us not close our hearts to them, God. We love you, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name.